Let's turn back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. More could be said about the qualitative differences that are found in the 15th verse of Romans chapter 5, but you're going to have to look at the outline. I have much more that I've put together than what I've said, but I want to move on to the 16th and 17th verses. I do want you to understand, before we leave it, that there is a qualitative difference and a superiority of grace to justice, of mercy to judgment. The Bible says, He that shows judgment without mercy shall be judged without mercy. It's James 2.13. You make a choice every day in how you deal with everyone, whether you're going to be merciful or you're going to try to exact judgment in your opinion. The Bible says that if you show judgment without mercy, that is what you're going to get. That's the way the Lord's going to treat you. If you want to be judgmental of other people, then the Lord's going to be judgmental of you and you're going to see its effects in your lives. But mercy, this is the rest of the verse, James 2.13, but mercy rejoices against judgment. Mercy is a very pleasant thing to show, and it's very pleasant with God, and God wants us to show it. The Bible says this in another place. Matthew twelve seven. it's from Hosea 6, 6, and it's something David knew because he knew the character of God. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy is more important to God than the justice and the judgment of perfect sacrifice. Mercy is more important. And those are things to remember as you weigh the qualitative difference between the first Adam and the second Adam, which is what verse 15 was revealing to us. It showed us that God's grace and the gift by grace, which was His Son, Jesus Christ, is superior to what Adam accomplished in Eden. God chose to display the character trait He has of graciousness, of grace, and of mercy. In choosing to display that, he needed enemies. So he allowed sin into the world and us to fall through Adam so that we were his enemies legally and his enemies by nature so that he could show that grace and mercy toward us. Because unless you're showing grace and mercy toward enemies, it's not much of grace and mercy. Remember, grace is demerited favor. It's when you've earned something else and grace and mercy says, I'm going to give them a gift anyway. But God chose to show his grace to his elect. In order to show grace to elect, they were enemies at the time in the legal council, in the councils of God. He saw them legally under Adam's condemnation and their own sins. You then choose a gift that you're going to give. And these are the three things that are mentioned in the second half of Romans 5.15. The grace of God and the gift by grace. So God chose to display gracious mercy toward us. That gracious mercy and his, in his infinite wisdom, settled on a gift that he would give, and the gift would be free. It wouldn't be wages. It wouldn't be a reward for good performance. It would be freely given. And what would it be? In order to truly show graciousness, you've got to give the most expensive gift you can. And God gave the most expensive gift he could give. It was his only begotten son. God's grace was, he chose to display grace. That grace needed to give a gift. And that gift was his own son, far superior to anything Adam did against us in the Garden of Eden. So we have the 15th verse that says, For if through the offense of one many be dead, and we know that to be the truth, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace 
which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. We have much more and abounded. In verse 15, we have the word many. In verse 17, no, verse 18. Verse 18, we have the word all. And verse 19, we have the word many. As you see these many and all and many used, it is to compare the one versus the many. It is not trying to make any point about the all and, and the all, the, 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 the constituents of Adam being the same as the constituents of Jesus Christ. It's not making that point. It's the, it's the one versus the many, which is the doctrine of imputation, the doctrine of representation. We can see many and all used in either respect. When we see many, we know that the many in Adam is everyone that ever proceeded from Adam. We see the many in Christ being the many that he gave his life a ransom for, being the elect of God. When we read the word all, we know that it's all that are in Adam die, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and we know that it's the all in Christ that live, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. The all that live in Christ are not the same all that are in Adam, or we have to believe in universal redemption. Right. And everybody, everybody would be in heaven and there would be nobody in hell. We understand it because the Bible tells us, as in Adam all die. How do we get into Adam? By God's choice in human birth or conception. How do we get into Christ? By God's choice of election and the new birth that puts us in Him, if you want to think about the vital phase of salvation. So don't get worried about the many and the all. 1 Corinthians 15.22 is your best cross-reference. As in Adam all die. We understand that. All that are related to Adam have to die. Even so, all in Christ shall be made alive, all that are related to Jesus Christ. And how does that relationship get started? We're chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, His purpose and grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began, 2 Timothy 1.9. That's why the word all is used. It's all in Christ. There'll be no exceptions. Didn't Jesus say, I would lose none of them? Well, that means all. All that were given to Him by the Father... He would certainly give eternal life to and not lose one of them. Let's go to the 16th verse. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Now this verse starts out with an and, which is a coordinating conjunction. Instead of the disjunctive but, it started out verse 15. We don't need another but in verse 16 because and ties us into the but of verse 15. Paul is continuing to give another difference between Adam and Christ. And I appreciate those of you who told me at break time that you understood it. That these verses had been confusing, had appeared to be a little convoluted, but in light of the 14th verse, that Adam was a figure of Jesus Christ... You understand why there's a but and a not and a much more in verses 15, 16, and 17 because while the similarity stands, there are several differences that make Jesus Christ and salvation by Him much greater, much more certain, much more wonderful than the condemnation that came by Adam. So here we are in verse 16. We have an and there, and then it's worded very similarly to the 15th verse. If we take away the not... It looks like this. As it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. See, there's the comparison. There's the powerful as-so construction. Adam is a figure of Jesus Christ. 
Adam and Jesus Christ in the matter of imputation are similar. But there's a not there. Meaning that there's a difference. The first difference was quality. In verse 15. We forced God's hand, or Adam forced God's hand, to execute judgment based on a covenant that bound God to show His righteousness and His justice and His judgment if Adam sinned. But far greater than that was God's choice, free choice, free gift, to show His grace and a free gift even by sending His Son. No constraint to do that whatsoever. You wouldn't have done it, and I wouldn't have done it. I would not send my son for you, and you would not send your son for me. Let's get that down pat. If we were enemies of each other, for scarcely for a good man will, will any die. But God commended his love toward us while we were sinners. It's just wonderful here to see that comparison. So we come to the 16th verse. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. One Sinned. How many times did Adam sin in order to condemn the entire human race? One time. Did Adam sin many more times? Yes. But only one of those sins is applied to his progeny. And it was that first one by a covenant relationship that God established between him and all of his descendants. It's called in verse 14, Adam's transgression. Singular. We who have been shown the truth of Galatians 3.16, that there is a difference when a S is added on to a word, that it changes it from a singular to a plural. Those of us who have been shown that should latch on to every word in a passage like this and believe it. It was Adam's transgression, singular, in verse 14, which is described very plainly in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, on three occasions, that it was the one sin of Adam with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was the sin God judged. It's the sin that cursed the ground. It's the sin that God had promised will bring death. That particular transgression. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. Paul is introducing the 16th verse by telling us, there's another difference I want to explain to you. Verse 15 was qualitative. God's grace God's gift by grace and the gift of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, is greater in value, in nature, in its makeup, in its inherent and intrinsic preciousness than Adam being a mere man and an offense that forced God's hand to show justice because of a covenant that He had made with Him. Quality is verse 15. Adam and Jesus are similar and imputation is similar But there's a difference in quality. And that quality is for us to rejoice in the grace of God, exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, and have the greatest measure of comfort possible from the Bible. Because we know that death has its tentacles around us. We know that death is clutching at us, and it will take each one of us if the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't come back. We know that about death. We believe, verses 12 through 14, because we see death around us. But the Word of God is to show us things we don't see with these eyes. And the things we don't see are the grace of God, the gift by grace, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is more certain. It is much more. It is abounding in power and value. And if we know death has a hold of us, and if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you know that life has a hold of you, and that God has a hold of you, and that God will certainly save your soul. You know that you're going to die. Why do you believe that one? 
Well, I see people dying around me, and when I look in the mirror, I can see death creeping up on me. So you'll look in that mirror, but you won't look in God's Word and believe that? Who cares if everyone's dying around you? What does that prove? Maybe you're going to be the exception. What does that prove compared to God's Word? We should believe God's Word more. And do you know what it says? Much more. The abounding grace and the gift by grace and the man Jesus Christ has eternal life for us and salvation. So we come to verse 16 and and so we have another difference introduced. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. Though there is a similarity, Paul said there's another difference we need to take note of. For, and here's the explanation, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For the judgment was by one. For the judgment was by one. Is that one? Don't answer me because I don't want to embarrass you. For the judgment was by one. Is that one man or one sin? It's one sin. Now, how do we know? This is, this is reason number 30 or 20 or 10 why we have the daily proverb commentary. When you read a proverb and you see two clauses that are comparing things or contrasting things, and proverbs are dark sayings, they have ellipses in them. An ellipsis, singular, is when a word or words are missing that you should understand by looking at the whole sentence. And Proverbs does it often. We are able to fill in the two clauses of a proverb by looking at the first clause, comparing it to the second clause. Oh, oh, I, I see what point he's driving at. So the first clause is an agreement. If it's, if it's an agreeable proverb or it's a contrary proverb, we look at that second clause and we know that the first one can be filled out with words from the second one, and and the second one can be filled out with words from the first one. That is how you understand Romans 5.16, the second half of the verse, where it says, For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. The contrast in those two clauses is one to many. One to many Offenses. So it's one offense to many offenses. Now, you may have already known that. But I just want to show you how we interpret the Bible. And you do this in Proverbs in almost every verse to some degree. But you do it here. When it says the judgment was by one, it is not referring to Adam as a person. It's not referring to one man. It's referring to one sin because it is set in juxtaposition to many offenses. It's set in opposition to many offenses. So we're dealing with one sin versus many sins, and that's why verse 16 is quantity. It is quantitative. And it's much better. Amen. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. There is a dissimilarity here. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is teaching us there is something better about Christ's salvation than Adam's condemnation. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. It was one sin. And that. I hope you understand when I say this. A relatively minor sin. It's not like he blasphemed God or built an idol to another God. It's that he ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when he wasn't supposed to. I'm not making light of the sin. I'm just trying to put it in its perspective. One sin. 
One sin brought death and condemnation upon the entire race of 90 billion human beings that have been conceived from our first parents, Adam and Eve. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, one offense. Adam ate the fruit off the tree that God said don't eat. That was the one offense that is brought to bear on each of us. It's not the rest of Adam's sins. He's responsible for them. But it was that one sin that was in a covenant transaction with God. Adam, if you sin, you're going to bring my judgment upon the rest of your family tree. We don't know that from Genesis. We know it from Romans chapter 5. That's how we read Romans chapter 5, and we can understand Genesis better. The New Testament is the spectacles with which we read the old. We never read the new with the spectacles of the old. Some people get so messed up. I don't know why there are so many churches and emphases today on wanting to learn about the tabernacle. Forget the tabernacle, show me heaven. Forget Moses, show me Christ. Forget the brass serpent. Forget the altar of brass. Forget the altar of incense. Forget the candlestick. Forget the mercy seat. Show me mercy in heaven. We, we see everything from the New Testament looking back. We have the superior knowledge. That was shadows. We have the real thing in the new. But men will get misled and the devil will help mislead them. So that they waste their time spinning their wheels in things that do not profit their souls. We are in verse 16. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. One sin by Adam brought judgment upon 90 billion. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. In the second act of imputation, not Adam's, but Jesus Christ, he paid for Adam's sin. And how many on your account? 15 or 20? All of them. How You have 15 or 20 in your lifetime? 15 or 20 a year? 15 or 20 a day? Multiplied by the elect? How, what can we put in the word? What can we define many with? Is it 20 sins? 2 million sins? Billions of sins? Billions. If God would hold one sin in such high regard by His justice that He would apply death to 90 billion people, how much more will God hold a sacrifice that paid for billions of sins? That's verse 16. The difference in quantity. Jesus Christ died for our sin or sins. Depends which passage you're looking at, but it sins in many, many places. Did the Lord lay on him the, the iniquities, plural, of us all? Amen. Amen. And it says it over and over. Look at, I, I have 50 ver- which ones of the 50 do you want? Maybe it's 60. How about, she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their, their, Now that gets us a many already, doesn't it? Their sins. Plural. Plural. That's Matthew one twenty one. I used that this morning earlier. Look at Romans chapter 4 and verse 7. Right there nearby. Romans 4, 7. David wrote this in Psalm 32. Blessed are they whose iniquities, plural, are forgiven, and whose sins, plural, are covered. Iniquities and sins, plural. If God 
in the doctrine of imputation, would hold one sin so strongly with his justice, how much more will his grace hold and apply, bless and prosper the covering, the payment for many offenses? That's the point. Quantitatively, God's grace and the gift by grace and what Jesus Christ did for us is much weightier by its quantity because it's many offenses. If you're going to die because of one sin by Adam, I know you've added your own to it, but you would have died anyway without your own. How much more is God going to save you since His Son Jesus Christ died for all the sins you've added to Adam's? Not only did Jesus Christ die and pay for Adam's sin, but He died and paid for all of yours. So if you're writing in the margin of your Bible, it's quality at verse 15, it's quantity at verse 16. That's the difference that He's showing. The Holy Spirit is saying, yes, Adam is a figure of Jesus Christ. Those are the words from verse 14. There is a figurative resemblance here. There is similarity, but the quality is different in verse 15. The quantity is different in verse 16. Jesus had to suffer the wrath of God for Adam's offense and all your offenses. And if God held Adam's for all the constituents of Adam, how much more? Is he going to hold what his son did for many offenses to the constituents of the man Christ Jesus? Praise his great and glorious name. Verse 17. Four. Now four is a coordinating conjunction. We had but to get us started in verse 15 because there's going to be a difference between Adam and Christ. It's continued with an and in verse 16, and it's continued with a four in verse 17. We are inside the parentheses, and the parentheses will end it with, the, with the end of verse 17. Three things. We had quality in verse 15, quantity in verse 16, and now we have authority. And the authority is indicated to us by the word reign. Verse 15, verse 17, excuse me, verse 17. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. It's no longer the one sin versus the many sins of 16. It's the one man Adam versus the one man Christ Jesus. But the difference now is the authority that is conveyed by the two of them. Adam brought an authority into our lives, and it was the authority of death over us. Death reigned from Adam and Moses, verse 14. Death reigned in this verse. For if by one man's offense, death reigned. Death was given the throne of a monarch over our lives. He, it was a despot that we cannot defeat. There's no discharge in that war. I love quoting that verse because I just like the way it's worded. There is no power in a man to retain his spirit in the day of death, and there is no discharge in that war. Ecclesiastes 8.8 Because it is the king of terrors, he is on a throne, and death has us as the last enemy that shall be destroyed by Jesus Christ. You cannot defeat death. Death is going to defeat you. You've seen the little signs in offices that there are certain things that are certain in the world, and one of them is death. You know, the other one is taxes, but death... Death is certain because death has dominion and power and authority and control and rule. It reigns over your life. 
For if by one man's offense death reigned. Now the if doesn't mean there's any doubt about the doctrine. The if is to set up the comparison. If that's true, and it is obviously, absolutely, perfectly true, and there's no doubt in Paul's mind or yours, but we want to understand what the setup is. The setup is that a single sin by Adam gave this thing called death authority over you. Power over you. It is your king. It reigns. You are its subject. You are a bond slave to death, who is your master, your lord. He reigns. It reigns. You can say he when you personify it. We personify death sometimes as Father Time. It's the authority. One sin gave death. One sin by Adam. A mere man. A collection of dust. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. That man sinned, and by that single transaction, by a natural, earthy man, death got the authority and power and dominion over all of us. You can go to GNC and get all their mass-produced vitamins. You can go online and pay five times as much for the same vitamins with a different label. You can do whatever you want. You can go to the gym and work yourself Thin, you can eat right, make sure that you get all your vegetables, you can do whatever you want, you can make sure you lock the doors at night, you never climb a ladder, and you don't ride a bike without a helmet. You can do all those things, but death reigns over you. Death is your king, it is a sovereign monarch, and you cannot defeat it. That's what the if is there for. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one. If there's a similarity between Adam and Christ, Jesus Christ is better by the quality of everything associated with him. Verse 15, he is better by the quantity of what he did in the cross versus what Adam did in Eden. And he is better by the authority that results from his transaction. There's authority from Eden. We can't stop it. It's going to take each one of us. We can fight it with all our might. You can grab the bed rails in your final bed, and you can heave your lungs all you want, but there's going to come a breath that you can't get because death is going to say you may not have that one. And there is a pretty powerful impulse in us to want the next breath. But death reigns over us. This is no bad sermon. And we're not ending in the middle of verse 17 because the second half of verse 17 is what we're here for. And the second half of verse 16 is what we're here for. And the second half of 15. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more, much more, Much more, much more, they which receive abundance of grace. Where was that thing described? In verse 15, the qualitative superiority of grace and how much grace is there when it involved a free gift and the free gift was his only begotten son. It's an abundance of grace. 
much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. You want to talk about reigning power? What is the gift of righteousness? Is it your righteousness? Is it God helping you do right? Or is it the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you in justification as a free gift? Much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Now there is some authority. There is some dominion. There is some power and there is some rule. Jesus Christ has authority to give life and Jesus Christ has given life and we live authoritatively now in the life that we presently have. Didn't you read last night in John 10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. This is a man that has the power and authority to give life. This is a man who was able to raise the dead and he mocked the mourners at funerals. Do you know that they made fun of my Savior Jesus Christ? Because he said, why are you making all this noise? She's not dead, she's asleep. And they mocked him. He, she was sleeping in his opinion, because his opinion was, and his will was, I can speak the word and raise her from the dead. Right. He has the power and authority and reign and rule of life over death. Did he say, I'm able to lay my own life down, I'm able to take it again, and no man takes it from me? Do you like that kind of authority in the second Adam? Can I please get you excited about the grace of God? You think death has a hold of you? It does. Is death your king? It is. But is there a bigger king? Is there a stronger king? Is there a more successful king? Does he have some sort of reign and power? Do we love to sing, up from the grave he arose? In vain they sealed the dead. Pilate's signet, boom, in the wax on that grave. Are you kidding me? He puts an armed guard up to keep that tomb? How many soldiers would it have taken to have kept the Lord Jesus Christ in that tomb? Tell me I need a number. I just need a big number. Oh, there is no number. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that excite you at all? Do you know that He told people in advance, if you'll kill me, and I'm going to let you, I'm going to be in the ground 72 hours and I'm going to come out. Now that's just, that's too much power for me to get a hold of. If somebody were to rise from the dead, I doubt they told their murderers in the beginning that if you kill me, I'm going to rise at a certain point in time. You know, they just happened to rise from the dead. I'm, I'm, I'm making a ridiculous comparison because I want you to know about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the abundance of His grace. That grace was qualitatively defined for us in verse 15 in the comparison, but it's called an abundance of it. What, what makes it so abundant? He gave the most expensive gift He could possibly give, His only begotten Son for us. And that Son has the power. What verse do you want? I am He that was dead, and I am alive forevermore. Amen. And behold, I have the keys of hell and of... What are keys for? When somebody important comes to Greenville and our mayor gives them the keys to the city, does that mean that they can go open up any restaurant in town and get whatever they want out of the kitchen? What does the key represent? Is it usually a key that would fit in your doorknob? Or is it usually a decent sized key? What does the key represent? Authority! We give you our town. Welcome to our town. You're important to our town while you're here. We give them the keys to the city. It's a symbolic gesture of authority. What is Jesus twirling on his finger? The keys of hell and of death. Now we do this to make light of something. Do you know what? 
when the Lord Jesus Christ faces death, he can make light of it now because he's destroyed it. I, I don't know how to make the Bible plain to you. I, I do pray that I can, but this is the, this is the simplicity of these three verses. Right. Quality, quantity, authority. Death has authority. You watch somebody draw their last breath. You two watch somebody go flatline. Stop it. Try to make that flatline come back. Well, once they did, yes, I know. Fifteen minutes later, it went flat again. You can do anything with a shot of adrenaline, but eventually the hurt's going to stop. And I'm just speaking to everybody in here. There is an authority in the universe, and it's the authority and reign and power and rule and dominion of death, and it dominates us. But there is another authority in the universe. He rose from the dead. And he showed them his hands and his feet. He said, touch me. I'm not a spirit. I'm alive. He broiled fish for them and fed them a fish fillet on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can read it for yourself. I don't care what Dr. Melkmus says about cooking your food in the Hallelujah Diet. He gave them a fish fillet. He broiled fish for them. He ate with them. They touched him. The Lord Jesus Christ was alive, and he ascended into heaven bodily. And he came into heaven. He sat down on the right hand of God in a body. And he has the keys of hell and of death. And he's alive forevermore. So that when we read 1 Corinthians 15, like we did to open this assembly, we can mock death and we can mock the grave if we understand these three verses. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one. Is that true? Have I made that clear? Death has dominion over us. We can't stop it. Much more, there is something else that we should lay hold of by faith. We lay hold of it because God's revealing it to us. And it's more important than anything you can see. It's more important than any prevention magazine that you can read. It's more important than any doctor telling you you've only got three day, probably three days left to live. Do you know what Jesus Christ has said? You've got an eternity to live. And the last verse that you added on to John Newton's amazing grace, that when you've sung my praise for 10,000 years, there's no fewer days than when you got started, is absolutely true. Forget that man and what he said about three days. I give you eternal life. That's what Jesus Christ is saying to us. And you should believe it by faith because it's in writing. It's in writing in the Bible. This is God has committed Himself to, to tell you what He's going to do for you. And I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Jesus Christ has the power of life over death. He raised the dead. He raised Himself from the dead. And He's going to raise every single one of us. He said in John chapter 5, As the Father hath life in Himself, so hath He given to the Son to have life in Himself, and hath given Him authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. And He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth My word and believeth on Him that sent Me hath everlasting life. And He went and described the power of His voice in regeneration. But then He said, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth right. to both resurrections. I mean, to the, to, to the two ends of the one resurrection. One to judgment and damnation and one to salvation and confirmation. This is the intent of verse 17 for us to rejoice in it. Now it says, much more they which receive abundance of grace. And you know what some Arminian will do? You know what Charles Finney would do? Yeah. 
Do you know what so many would do today? Almost everyone today? They'll run to that verse and see the word receive and say, See? 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 Jesus Christ only made it possible. You've got to receive it in order for it to be into force for you. That receive is a passive reception in which something is given to you, which is the way it's used most times in the Bible. How do we know that? By simply reading verses 12 through 21. The whole point is representation. One for the many. This isn't you participating. You don't receive, you don't receive or actively participate or cooperate or activate what Jesus Christ did for you any more than you actively cooperate, participate, or activate what Adam did for you. It doesn't matter what you think about Adam. And most of the world today denies that there was an Adam and Eve. But the effect is still upon them. And it is the effect of the Lord Jesus Christ by covenant design with God Himself that affects salvation upon the elect. This is frivolous, finny reasoning that misses the point of the whole section, which is one versus the many. Which he'll go back and repeat in case you got confused. In verses 18 and 19, he'll make it very plain, like verse 19, which is shorter for your understanding. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ an act of obedience? Of course it is. Then it can't be involved in you being made righteous. Because it says by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. When was the last time you accepted Adam as your personal sin representative? What if you didn't want to accept Adam as your personal sin representative? Are you still going to die? When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and when we lay hold of Him by faith, and when we repent of our sins, and when we bring forth good works to prove our faith, that is the evidence that Jesus Christ was our representative and our federal head, and that He... And His perfect obedience and righteousness were imputed to our account. It's not how we activate it. It's not how we cooperate with it. It's how we prove that it's ours. And it's what we ought to do to prove it. There are so many other things that could be said on this point. Does the Bible say it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy? Romans 9.16. Does John 1.13 tell us that anybody that is born again to become a son of God was born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man? but of God. It's all of God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The word receive is used there in a passive way. When I give you, when you are pardoned, you receive a pardon. You don't have to do anything. The guy comes and unlocks you and says you're free. You're pardoned. You're not going to go to the electric chair. doesn't matter whether you accept it or not. You're not going to the electric chair. Now, if you accept it, it's a nice thing. It's a nice feeling. If you don't accept it, it's still, you're not going to the electric chair, you've been pardoned. You've received a pardon. That's a passive reception. That's the way the word is used often in the New Testament. That doesn't prove the point. The point is proved right here by context. It's one versus the many. It's the doctrine of representation that proves the point. If death was powerful in its reign to the destruction of our race, how much more the power of life to the elect? If there's an absolute certainty of death's dominion over all men by Adam's sin, how much more shall God's abundant grace and Jesus Christ's righteousness cause life to have dominion over His saints and His saints to have dominion in life? We have it now. We have life inside us. We have been born again. 
We have new life from the dead. Does it say, and you hath he quickened? What does that mean? To make alive. Life is all around us. We have life within us. Do you know what? We want these bodies to die. Can I help you get a hold of that? We want these bodies to die because these bodies are the sinful thing left that we get rid of at death. Right. The sinful body, when it's put in the ground, 1 Corinthians 15 wants to comfort us by telling us you can't get the new plant unless you put the seed down. So we put the seed down to get the new plant. What is the new plant? A glorified body. But our spirit's going to go straight to be with the Lord. Life has already been guaranteed for us. The spirit goes straight to be with the Lord. We already have a new life in us, created in righteousness and true holiness by the new birth. When we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and the books are open, the book of life is open, our name will be found there. The Bible says the second death hath no power over them that were part of the first resurrection. Revelation 20 and verse 6. Jesus defied death in others, raising them from the dead. He mocked it as sleeping. Adam died himself, and he couldn't bring himself back to life. He couldn't stave off the the consequences of his sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ took all our sins. He drank of the wine of God's wrath, and he drank the dregs of it. He reached to the bottom and took every bit of God's wrath and shook those dregs into his mouth that are every one of our sins. The Bible describes it that way. And then he went to the cross and he destroyed every single one of them and he rose from the dead. Amen. He, took, he took everything that we had to throw at him by our sins, everything that God threw at him in justice and the application of righteousness for our redemption and swallowed it and died for it but rose from the dead. Amen. He defied death in himself. He took his life up again, and he forecasted it in detail. We reign with Jesus Christ now, and we're going to reign with him later. We're going to reign with him for eternity from here forward. We mock death by reigning over it. And then, didn't we read a few minutes ago, and then shall be brought to pass that saying, death is swallowed up in victory. When you, do we ever say something about swallowing something up or he could eat him for breakfast? What do we mean? He is overwhelmingly more powerful. And Jesus Christ is overwhelmingly more powerful in life and the authority of living and the promise of eternal life than Adam was in death and the condemnation of death. We can mock it. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Jesus Christ has destroyed both of you. He destroyed the strength of sin. He kept the law. He destroyed the sting of death by destroying and paying for all our sins. Therefore, we can say, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. We were once the bond slaves of death, which was our master. Now we're the lords of life. We should be living now with hope of men. We have life inside vitally. We have final salvation coming. The resurrection of even dead bodies. These corrupt bodies are going to be put back together and made incorruptible. Because flesh and blood can't inherit heaven. So 1 Corinthians 15 told us we're going to get a new spiritual body. This is the power of the reign of life through the righteousness and the abundance of grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Brethren, 
Adam brought death upon us. Jesus did not just bring a restoration to the innocence of Eden. Jesus brought eternal life in heaven. We are not restored to Adam's position of being able to fall in Eden. We're restored to Jesus Christ's position in heaven as a son of God incapable of falling. We are the adopted sons of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're kings and priests. And our kingly authority includes death. Because we have authority over it by Jesus Christ our Lord. This is in writing. Don't let this world come up with vain thoughts. Don't listen to any of their vain thoughts about life and death. Life and death are only known by those who gave the life, those who imputed the death, and those who gave us eternal life. And that is the Godhead and our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in Him and put all your trust in Him. These verses were written to magnify God's grace, exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, and comfort the hearts of God's elect, that though they know the doctrine of verses 12 through 14 is horrible, and though they know death is clutching at them and has a reign over them, yet grace, the gift by grace, even Jesus Christ in verse 15, is better in quality. The number of sins paid for and thus the value of the sacrifice at Calvary is greater in quantity. And the Lord Jesus Christ has greater authority than death ever had. This is Romans 5, 15 through 17. There's only one thing we ought to do. That is to thank the God of heaven for sending the second Adam to save us in the glorious way that he saved us here and then to live for him. That's why the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15 was, Therefore, brethren, we ought to abound in the work of the Lord. If God was abounding toward us, let's be abounding toward Him. As the sixth chapter is going to teach us, what shall we say then? I mean, this is just overwhelming, this display and description of grace. In chapter 5, the consequence might be, To a foolish mind, in verse 1 of chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Since there's so much grace, we might as well just not worry about whether we're sinning or not because there's plenty of grace to overcome it. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Let's live the life that He called us to live, one of good works, which He's ordained for us. Let's live it unto Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. This is Romans 5, 15-17. May Jesus Christ be praised.